for Business podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral, and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Brain4Biz and on LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. A recent project in the United States sought to map collective well-being. Supported by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Mapping Collective Wellbeing Project aimed to better understand the well-being ecosystem in the United States and globally. In so doing, the project aimed to address a number of key questions. How do we co-create a vision and appreciation of the roles we play in working toward collective well-being? What might deepen, strengthen, and broaden this work? Where are there connections in unlikely places? And where and how do we begin? To explore the question of collective well-being in greater detail, I'm delighted to be joined by Theo Edmonds, who contributed to that research. Theo is a skilled energetic culture futurist and innovator with over 25 years senior level strategic national and international leadership experience spanning the private, public and nonprofit sectors. A seasoned communicator, Theo's unconventional background traverses and connects scholarly research with pop culture across scientific disciplines, data analytics, creativity, and cultural well-being in the places we work, learn, heal, and explore. As directing co-founder of the University of Colorado Denver's Imaginator Academy, a cultural analytics strategy and futurist innovation hub, Theo is a weaver of ideas who scouts global networks of entrepreneurs, companies, scientists, artists, creative innovators, and change makers of all kinds in order to find hidden opportunities that others miss. An experienced builder of industry and university collaborations, Theo and collaborators have been recognized across many areas, ranging from Trailblazer Awards in research for cultural analytics innovation inside a National Science Foundation-sponsored lab, to a number of national grants and vision awards in arts and creative economy. Theo, welcome to Brain for Business. It's great to be here. I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation today. Well, thank you for joining us. And I, I guess to start the, the conversation, why is collective well-being so important? Before I get into that, I, I, I'm so excited to uh, be able to uh, promote the uh, mapping the collective wellbeing.org is the is the website. And uh, just to be clear that it was not my research. I was brought in as an interviewee, an example of what it might look like across the United States. But my dear friend, Julie Rusk, who was the first chief of civic well-being of any city in the U.S. in Santa Monica, California. And today she's with Civic Wellbeing Partners, and it was their work with the Institute for Collective Wellbeing that really uh, put that research together. And I'm just standing on very honored to have been uh, included as an example of work that is happening in the U.S. Okay, thank you, and and we'll we'll make sure to put a to put a link to that in the uh, in in the show notes. And so, where where does that then, I guess, um, take us in in terms of that particular research and its importance and the, the research that you contributed to? So, I, th I think some definitions might be a good place to start. So, when we're talking about collective well being, 
at its most basic, we're really just talking about how well a group of people are doing. And so when we think about individual well-being of how a person feels, say, you know, in their personal, physical, mental, social health, financial well-being, but then we recognize that no individual is an island unto themselves. We all participate in various groups in society. And so as we go out and we start interacting with others in our day-to-day lives, this is where the idea of the collective comes into play. And, you know, one of the one of the things that I often present on is is how stories kind of shape what we see as as possible in the world. And and indeed, there's a fabulous Nobel laureate economist, Robert Schiller, who's who's got a book, uh, Narrative Economics, that kind of explores how the stories we tell about something uh, influence what we experience in our world. And uh, so when you think about collective well-being, we've got all of these kind of cognitive biases in our in our brains that cause us to form stories that may or may not be true, but those stories then shape what we see as possible and valuable in society. And a good example of this is just kind of, if you think about the, the idea of genius, right? Um, so, that's an illusion that genius is a solitary endeavor. And I think in, in some ways, it's one of our most pervasive cognitive biases uh, at, a, at a large scale here in the in the U.S. for sure. Um, but if you look at history and research, there's a, a contrasting narrative there. Genius is not an isolated phenomenon, but it is a collective triumph. It's a confluence of individual intellect, social interaction, cultural context. And so this understanding of genius as a societal construct rather than an individual kind of set of traits, it helps us to reframe our perception of innovation and progress. It emphasizes the the indispensable role of community and dialogue and shared knowledge uh, and in shaping the extraordinary. And so one of the things that kind of I just love around collective well-being because um, we, we see it in different parts of society, but this being a business podcast, there was a, a talk that I went to. It was the annual Chamber of Commerce luncheon in Denver um, in the in earlier this year. And the current chair of the board for the Denver Chamber of Commerce, I live in Denver, Colorado, George Sparks. Uh, George is also a kind of a scientist CEO type of the Nature and Science Museum there in Denver. And so George, in his address to the room of corporate executives, and I'm going to paraphrase just a bit here, but he gets into this idea of collective well-being this way. He says, you know, everything that we think of as industry, as a nation, as a corporation, every human experience, indeed, that has ever taken place comes from just two things. The things that we have pulled from the earth, and human imagination, human creativity. Those two things have created everything that any human has ever known on this planet. And both of those things are stardust. And so what he means by that is that the things that we use in the earth's resources to to build our nations, to build our industries, and the mind, the human creativity, human imagination, because all all human creativity starts first as human imagination. Indeed, all knowledge first begins as human imagination. So this relationship between the earth and, and what our imagination and a creativity that comes from the human mind can do has shaped everything we know. 
And when we think about collective well-being today, that then, you know, begs the question, as we kind of stand here at this precipice of an era of generative artificial intelligence, what does it mean in our pursuit of knowledge as humans? And when we have AI promising to, you know, supercharge our empirical abilities, and uh, I, I think about things like, what is the implications on that in to our sense of wonder? Uh, if you look at the collective well-being uh, in data, it's been well documented in the U.S. particularly. We have, despite being one of the most funded healthcare systems on the planet, our mental well-being has been declining for a very long time. Toxic work culture is the number one people are leaving their jobs. And when you think about those kinds of things, and we also see documented declines in creativity, what are the implications then on our sense of wonder? Because a sense of wonder is kind of, if you think about it, uh, think about it this way, and this is how the science kind of plays this out. If you think about creativity as a plane, and it travels back and forth between two roots. On one side of the root is a sense of awe. And that can take place when we see a mountaintop, like in the Rockies, or we hear a baby cracking, or we see a ballet dancer soaring across the stage. We have this sense of wondering at something. And so on the other end of that route of the creativity plane is curiosity. So curiosity is about, uh, and I know you've had Dr. Glavineau on here before, mm -hmm. he talks about it as the sense of wondering about something. So curiosity is a terminal kind of condition. It, with a little effort, you know, you can, you can scratch that itch and you may become curious about something else, but it is a terminal state. And so creativity needs both of those things. We need those expansive moments and we need those specific moments, awe and curiosity. But wonder is the thing that keeps creativity going back and forth between those two things. And interestingly enough, we now are seeing even implications of how a sense of wonder not only allows us to innovate more, but it also improves our ability to be in community with each other. It also improves our ability to collectively work together, as well as a number of other things that if you look at the World Economic Forum's Future of Work Job Skills Report, the one just came out for 2023, and you take out the digital skills from the top 10 skills that every company is going to have to have to thrive in the future of work. What we're looking left with once those digital skills are taken out are things that have to do and depend upon our sense of wonder about the world. And so collective well-being is not just something we do to make ourselves feel better. Collective well-being is an example of what we can accomplish together when we have a sense of hope, when we have a sense of belonging, when we trust each other, when there's compassion. And so all of these things, you know, there's different fields of science that looks at them. You have social emotional learning, pro-social leadership is one way of looking at it. But then we also know that, you know, in healthcare, for example, indeed, compassion has been shown by uh, many researchers to be a predictive indicator of the uh, efficacy of clinical care. And we just finished doing a project uh, in the last couple of years with the state of Colorado. It was for a group called Energize Colorado. And we measured the small business resiliency of the state of Colorado's small business ecosystem. 
And when the analysis came back and after all the statistical analyses were, were done, these data pointed to something really interesting. The construct of hope, trust, and belonging explained more variants about which businesses were resilient and which were not over the two years of COVID than did any other factor, including access to capital. So these are powerful indicators. And interestingly enough, they are also predictive indicators. And the predictive part is important because if we think about collective well-being in a data stamp from a data standpoint, we can't get lost in the G gross domestic product GDP trap of only collecting a set of economic activity as a historical indicator of what happened. It's going to be a pretty good indicator of how people have spent their time and their treasure, but it's not going to tell us too much about why, and it's not going to tell us too much about what might happen next in a world that is undergoing such an accelerated change in, in, in from a cultural standpoint as well as a technological standpoint. So all these factors can kind of uh, act as a confluence together that determines how we operate as groups. And the work that I'm doing these days is really looking at not the individual, uh, because the neurosciences and the, and the social sciences and other aspects of public health that study well-being have, have really proven the case on the individual standpoint. We're, we're clear on what we need to do with individuals. Now, whether we do it or not, it's a different question. But what does that look like as at the group level? And I think that is in the in the years to come as we see political and social strife um, seems to be ramping up, not only in the US, but across the world. This group level, our ability to work together to achieve a, a shared goal, to even enunciate what that shared goal might be as a group of diverse individuals is going to be um, the next frontier we have to cross. You mentioned there the, those characteristics of hope trust and, and belonging and, and the, the power that they had through the COVID-19 pandemic. Overall, would you feel that the, the pandemic and, and everything that went with it in terms, in many cases, of social isolation and the, the, the fear and, and in some cases paranoia, that that had an overall negative impact on, on our collective well-being as, as, as groups and perhaps also as societies? I, I think the the simple answer is is yes, of course it did impact it. But whether it was a positive or negative impact, I think is a matter of perspective. And, and why I say that is, is for example, in in um, in the first year of COVID here in the U.S., we saw that the belonging of a lot of the workforce took a took a major hit. You know, as as remote work came online. However. When you disaggregate the data, what we saw was black employees followed very closely by Hispanic employees. Their belonging actually went up because of remote work. And so that tells me that something was, you know, that something is there in the in their work culture that was causing their belonging to not be where it should be. However, it operated differently from another group of employees. And you know, I I say something happening there. I, we're pretty clear on what that might be about, but 
ethic perspective is important here because none of us are just one thing. And, and I think mm-hmm. we've moved past the point. We, you know, we, we talk about precision medicine now and we, we uh, uh, the, if you look at uh, Gen Z and how Gen Z is expecting things because of their experience of being a digital native and their personalization uh, of their experience in the world, this idea of personalization, I think, must extend to all aspects of our society. And that includes how we talk about data when we see data points come out. You know, I, the analogy that uh, I've, I've heard that I quite like as a visual is it's it's you can't really take a lawnmower to get rid of weeds. And so because you just end up mowing everything down. And I think we've moved past the point to talk about like culture being the problem. Well, whose culture are we talking about? How do we get specific on that? Because none of us are just one thing. And I grew up, I'm in Appalachia right now. Uh, and my parents home, I'm from a nine generation Appalachian family. And so that is a part of my identity. I'm also neurodiverse. I'm also part of the queer community. All of these aspects, I'm an artist, but I'm also a former corporate healthcare executive. I'm a lawyer, but I'm also a poet. I'm a researcher, but I'm also a husband. So all of these things are how I can, you know, make up my identity. And and identity is important because it's how all of us make meaning of what we see in the world. And if we're talking about collective well-being, what we're really trying to get into is how do we then leverage the fullness of the capacity of humans in a group to do more than any one person might be able to do on their own. And so it's incumbent upon us in the research world, in the business world, to to get past the notion of there's a one-size-fits-all because there is a one-size-fits-all, but is it going to deliver on the business outcomes that leaders think it will? No, probably not. And we saw this, you know, for years in the works in the workplace wellness programs. And the one thing that that is really interesting there is that since COVID, workplace wellness programs don't really work on delivering the core value proposition that they say that they are delivering, namely improvement of cost from employee well-being. And that cost can be calculated in terms of productivity, presenteeism, as well as the health piece. What they do is they kind of play to a cognitive bias, work with wellness programs often just play to a cognitive bias of a leader that because they're spending money on something like workplace wellness, because they offer it, that they are addressing the real issue. But there was a double blind study and this was, it was 2019, this came out and it was in the New York Times had a big write up on it. But they don't, these worksite wellness programs don't really deliver on their core promise. And so what one of the things that I, I'm often worried about these days is with the immense uh, investments that we are making in, from a venture capital, private equity, um, corporate investment, institutional investors, the immense amounts of capital that we're pouring into technology to be an answer to solve something that wasn't really working before, I I wonder, are we accidentally and unintentionally scaling up something that doesn't work? And if so, with the advances in neuroscience that we're seeing and the advances in technology that we're seeing in three years time, four years time, five years time, when there are some maybe new answers and new breakthroughs and somebody comes to access the venture capital uh, community, to get funding to scale their solution, 
there's going to be a tendency, I think, to look at it and say, no, we tried that with technology and mental well-being and it didn't work. Well, did, did we really try it? I'm not sure. So these, these are all connected to each other and, and our systems often are, are built to be responsive systems, not predictive systems. And if we're always just responding, I feel like we're always going to be just a notch behind the pendulum as it swings. And we're just going to be caught in this ever, ever ending, non-ending cycle of trying to get in front of that pendulum. So I think if we can take a beat and step back and find a new way to look at something, a new question to ask, I think this is the time if ever there was in, in my lifetime, and I'm 53 years old, now's the time to do it. There are some fluid boundaries on, on things that were not there uh, before COVID. So whether or not we choose to take advantage of this opportunity, I think is, is, an, is a question that is, is yet to be answered. Uh, or are we just going to you know, invest in kind of expecting a tech-based solution to solve something at scale that wasn't solved before? So you know, the, these are the things that, that COVID is not just a, a question of mental well-being. It's not just a question of how it's impacted our health. It's a question of how it has impacted our collective well-being, and that collective well-being also implicates all of our institutions that we depend upon for technology transfer, for innovation, for all the things that the future of work job skills reports as every company must be doing. But those institutions were not always great at doing those things before. And so how we get into this next conversation, I think, is going to determine who's going to, you know, who's going to be uh, emerging as the winners and losers from a private sector standpoint in the, you know, over the next three, four years. Does that then suggest that questions of inclusivity and, and who is at the table and who is potentially excluded from the conversation be, become of even greater importance when we're thinking about collective well-being in that sense? It absolutely does. And there are, I think here, there's a note of caution because when we talk about inclusivity, we have to be also clear there. What, what exactly are we talking about when we say inclusive? Sure. There is diversity is what it looks like. Inclusion is what it feels like. And again, going back to that identity construct I set up a while ago, there's there's different reasons that a person you know is going to feel included or not. And when we think about inclusion in the corporate space, we tend to think about it often as the outcome of a cost center program that is perhaps HR or HR adjacent, but we don't think about it as being the critical factor that unlocks latent human capacity, human creativity, for that human creativity to then come out, flourish, and become enterprise-wide new value in terms of a commercial product or service, or even if you're looking at perhaps even in stakeholder economy, you're looking at uh, a, a corporate social responsibility type play in the world, right? So we have the wins within. Now, whether or not people unlock that and contribute that is a question of inclusion. I think a, I think a lot of leaders might have missed that, that we're not talking about risk mitigation, which is, you know, often a big function of HR. And so if we're thinking about inclusion as risk mitigation and cost, 
we're missing the point that these are the antecedent con- that inclusion is an a- one of the antecedent conditions. Well-being another. They are the antecedent conditions of unlocking creativity, innovation, capacity for it to become enterprise-wide value. But right now, we don't have our systems internally inside most companies set up to do that, and we certainly don't have the data dashboards that allow both of those sides, the innovation side, value creation side, to be managed simultaneously in a relationship with the human side. And the human side, I think these days, it for in my work, is really all about the brain and brain capital. And if we're not set up for that, does that also mean, or when I say we're not set up, I mean organizations are not set up for that. Does that also mean that they are not set up and prepared to deal with some of the challenges that might come along and and, and potentially in that regard, dealing with things not working out, failure for want of a better term? Failure is a a really interesting point. I had had a a C-suite from a Fortune 100 corporation had a really interesting conversation with me in in the not too distant past. And it started with this question. They asked me if I thought from what I saw in both the the kind of the cultural space that I looked at as a culture futurist, as well as the research on uh, well-being and, and so, and creativity. If it seemed like it might be possible, if these rapid cycles of innovation and failure in the corporate space because you if you invest time talent and treasure as a corporate team assigned to work on a project and that project dies at the end the next thing you're going to do as a corporate leader is probably move to the next project and you'll have multiple projects and maybe even the team around that around different ideas and maybe even some some of the team members are circulating among those different innovation teams, but we have kind of celebrated and fetishized the notion of failure in these corporate spaces as a thing that should be lauded. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one is who gets to benefit from failure. I can tell you this. When I talk to my black female executives in corporate world, their version of failure hits really differently than it does for a white male straight millennial in the tech space. Because talking about ideas of inclusion, those individuals don't just exist as islands unto themselves. They all come from a culture of the, a social culture outside of the U.S. and many into the corporate space. And so who gets to celebrate failure is understood differently and felt differently by different types of people based upon who they are. So that's piece number one. Yeah. But then piece number two is this. When something fails, there is a loss that is involved in that. And we may, you know, laugh it off. We may not acknowledge it as a loss, but our bodies do, our brains do. We know that something that has been heavily focused on by us, time, talent, and treasure, is not going to happen. 
we all experience disappointment. It's a very human thing. And so to think it is not present in these moments of these rapid cycles of let's innovate. Oh, it's going to fail. Let's move to the next thing. And we just keep moving, moving, moving. But we don't have that temporal concept of processing what has happened around that failure, right? We may we may look at it from an ROI standpoint, but we're certainly not looking at it as all the time from a human standpoint in most spaces. Because in corporations, you have two you have two things. Are we making a profit? And what is the time component on making that profit, right? Time and money. Those are the two things, despite all the rhetoric, that really guide the private sector space. That's not a value judgment. It's just a recognition of, of market forces. And so when we're failing, if that is always just happening and it's happening enough, we start to build up unprocessed grief from those unrealized things, those failures that we've had. And if there's no outlet for it, it causes chronic stress in our bodies. And that chronic stress then leads to a host of other things that have to do from inflammation in the body to declining mental well-being, et cetera. And so as you look at this, when he, this corporate executive asked me this question, their, their, their question kind of was, is this rapid cycles of failure causing unprocessed grief? And is that grief at a collective level inhibiting our ability to be creative, to think differently, and to do the things we're trying to do as an organization. They said they were asking that because they sensed that there was something like that happening. And so I thought it was incredibly insightful for this executive to bring, to kind of bring that. And it was a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a conversation like, where do you go with that? You know, as an organization, because if, if you're making, you know, if, if you're making watches uh, as a company, and especially a public company, and you've got a quarterly call, and you've got shareholders, and your performance is being evaluated on on the watches and the and the and the margin on those on on those watches. How far do you actually go venturing into a territory like unprocessed grief in your workforce from rapid cycles of failure of innovation that also have cultural implications outside of the workplace? Where do you start with that? I understand how challenging it can be. And, and you know, and so our systems of risk and reward that we, uh, that professionals experience in their lives is a very real um, driving factor that shapes how, you know, we approach things. It's not a lack of knowledge in, in most cases. It is a mismatch of the insight, the lack of skills around knowing what to do about that insight and the ability to have the time to address it in a way that's going to be meaningful. As you were talking about failure there and the question posed to you by um, by, by the executive you were speaking to, a, a link came to my mind to, to something you mentioned earlier on in the conversation, which is that that importance of stories and stories as a mechanism to on the one hand, to, to to grapple with that grief, but also to disentangle all of the different things that actually played out that led us to that situation. Is that a fair link to make? You Can you uh, break that apart for me just a little bit more? I want to make sure I'm answering the right thing. So on the one hand, we can look at so, so failure happens and people can feel that sense perhaps of loss or that sense of disturbance or that sense of, of upset, which you know might be described as grief. 
and they can maybe you know on the one hand perhaps sink into depression or they can wallow in self-pity but when we get people who are dealing with that together then they're able to have that conversation so what just happened there how 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 did that occur and was it really as bad as we thought or, or was it ever really as good as we had hoped and and so that that kind of collective i guess sense making may well act as a a process, a mechanism, uh, an approach to, to to kind of deal with that and pull out that that well-being element. Yeah, I, I see where you're going now. That that's really insightful. You know, as as you were talking, that my mind keeps going back to the World Economics Forum's Future of Work Job Skills Report. If you look at the top skills for that every company is going to have to have, a good chunk of those in the top ten are things like storytelling, resilience, flexibility, curiosity, self-awareness, empathy. And I question if we are actually, if we have middle management in place in any industry that actually knows how to do those things and coach for those things and manage for those things in our environments. And it's not, I'm not, it's not a, a criticism of middle managers necessarily, hmm. because for the last hundred years, we've told them that, you know, productivity and efficiency is the thing you must do. That is what you are responsible for, kind of this reinforcing hierarchy. But as we're looking at kind of a time when the concept of the firm is going uh, a little further and further in uh, fits and starts away from this kind of firm as the unit of measure, hierarchy as the thing, more into an ecosystem model of value creation. And now we're turning to middle managers and we're saying to them, and in addition to productivity and efficiency, we also need you to become inclusion experts. We need to, you to coach for belonging. We need you to understand how to unlock creativity. That's a tall order. That's mm. a really tall order. But we kind of keep enforcing it on, on middle management. And so it's no wonder that if you look at the, the work the souls have done in, at MIT on toxic work culture, you know, it's, it's the manager is, is where it all comes down to often. And I, I think we, we maybe villainize the managers a little bit because they are just part of a machine that is also in transition to becoming what it is going to be next. But we're not really supporting them. So there are different answers about how to fix that. Uh, I don't think it's it's necessarily about just taking somebody who signed up, you know, for a job that it, maybe somebody is is all about productivity and efficiency and that's all they really want to do. That's okay. But let's not ask them to do all these other things because they're they're not going to do it well because that's not what really drives them at the end of the day. So how do we think about management, I think, is also part of the big question around culture in the corporate space. And all of these things have direct resilience, curiosity. We talked about that earlier, self-awareness, empathy, storytelling. All of these things require cognitive skills that depend upon brain health. These are brain skills, creative thinking, analytical thinking. Aesthetic responsiveness, tech, you know, even technological literacy and systems thinking, all of these are brain skills that operate at an individual level, but they also have a collective component in how they get used by groups. 
And so it's, it's going to be a challenging few years, uh, you know, as we work our way through this, but the heavy lifting has already been, been done by groups like WEF and even McKinsey and company, you know, have done some really kind of interesting work on this. They call it their, their growth triple play. And one of the things that they found uh, when they did the study around uh, this concept was, was pretty interesting. So the growth triple play is looking at kind of as a foundation for, for growth in companies. And so there's kind of three, three things that McKinsey was looking at. One is creativity, one is analytics, and one is purpose. And all of those things are the social brain capital, the collect, have to do with the collective well-being at the group level, the functioning of the group to do something that then results in enterprise-wide, company-wide new value being created. The two components of creativity, kind of generally from a scientific perspective, novel idea, and then the ability to turn that novel idea into something useful or valuable. So creativity, analytics, and purpose was the three things McKinsey was looking at. And so what they found was that only, and this was from 2021, if memory serves, that only 7% of the companies are benefiting from this growth, a unified growth triple play of creativity, analytics, and purpose. They saw that companies that use just one of those capabilities had an average growth rate of six over 6%, adding a second over 7%. But if you had the full growth triple play in place, they showed it over a 12% growth rate. And so that's pretty profound. So that begs the question, well, why aren't all companies doing this? So we have to then think about the three components of this, creativity, analytics, and purpose. What do those mean at scale? What do those mean in groups? What do those mean as companies, as an industry? And this is where, again, I go back, you know, we're, we're on a brain-related podcast. The functioning of our brain health and the brain skills that come along with that brain health has never been more important because all of those things, creativity, analytics, and purpose, all require us to have a functioning social brain uh, taking place. And when we talk about creativity, uh, I've heard uh, that, you know, like most of the creativity that we have looked at in a research perspective that has looked at team level creativity or group level creativity in companies. And there's, there's quite a bit on it on, on team level creativity, but it's most all of it is looking at team as a as a contextual factor on individual creativity. So group creativity is different than just adding up all the individual creativity of the group, right? And then calling it the group. That's a, that's a sum, not a composite score. And creativity has different mechanisms inside of it. It is heavily mediated and influenced by things like hope, trust, belonging, inclusion, uh, compassion, curiosity, sense of awe, happiness, purpose, all those things kind of influence creativity, but we don't really have a good metric for creativity that we can go to at the group level that is actionable by an executive. And then the analytics that we have, we're all talking about culture transformation. We all want analytics for culture transformation, but most of our analytics right now are not set up to deliver that. You know, if you think about the infamous kind of employee culture survey everybody takes every year. That's not really analytics. That's, that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of things. <laughs> and there's, there's some good ones out there, but most of them are 
kind of performative exercises, it, it often seems to me. But we don't have the analytics in place. And so better analytics that are not just data points, but the data points turned into intelligence become important. And uh, I'll give you an example here, what I mean by this analytics piece. My main research partner, Cameron Lister, and I have, uh, we won the Trailblazer Award for Research and Innovation at the University of Louisville several, several years ago for creating something called uh, the, the Cultural Wellbeing Index. And it was a composite uh, analytics score for cultural transformation. And in the Colorado work I mentioned earlier in the podcast kind of grew out of that. So this was, we predated that. But through the years, we also added uh, things like a measure of curiosity. And we've measured four dimensions of curiosity. And, and if you can look at the data that we use, it's about 50 to 60 possible curiosity phenotypes that, that were possible to, to come out in the quantitative work that we did. But here was the funny thing we kept seeing. Out of all the different types of organizations that we did this with, different industries, the largest sample size was 3,700. All those organizations, all those companies had out of 50 to 60 possible curiosity phenotypes, over 90% of their employees represented in just four to five of the phenotypes. Now, those four to five changed from company to company but only four to five out of 50 to 60 possible. So what that told us was that companies were doing a really good job at hiring for culture fit. They, we've got that down. However, if one thing in the external environment changed, say a pandemic, say generative AI, despite being intellectually honest and having their best efforts involved, these companies just didn't have the bench to go to, to be able to think and act differently because they had hired mostly the same person for culture fit. And so when we're talking about analytics, it's not just about outputs. It has to be about outcomes and the outcomes of cultural transformation these days have got to be things like creative tension. We're, we're not measuring creative tension in companies and creative tension becomes important in this context because talk about that bridge between uh, human resources and the innovation sides of a house. When we're talking about creative tension for the last, you know, let's just say the last since 2000, what we have typically trained management to do is to say, we want you to identify your strengths and your employees' strengths, your team's strengths individually, and we want you to play to those strengths. And so we tell people to focus on what they're good at, and that's what we want you to do. And then on top of that, We've had twenty, uh, another twenty-five years of telling of telling people things like we like frictionless workplaces. We like everybody to to get along. And while that's that's true and that's that's good, I'm generalizing just a bit here. What happens if you're only playing to your strengths and you're only focused on creating a frictionless workplace? You look at something like a like a grand challenge. Every every you know, lots of companies are taking on these big grand challenges now, like you know, like global warming or you pick one. Well, they start with this big, big grand challenge. They come in, then they get to work on it. And then what happens? Well, creative tension starts. Creative tension happens by because of issues of demographic diversity, because of issues of functional diversity, which is something we don't talk about, job levels, power structures, between jobs, what skill sets we're trained for, an engineer versus a marketing person, et cetera. 
So that creative tension starts. And then so most managers go, we can't really have that. We don't like this tension that's happening. So we need to solve that tension. And so then the focus can become, if you're not paying attention, to solve the tension that you're feeling rather than solving the problem that you started off with, the grand challenge. And because then we have a process for that, say like design thinking, we're going to pull in design thinking, we're going to use it. And then all of a sudden, this tension goes away and we've solved for it. We've, we've had the process that was available to us and we've solved for it. But what we've actually done is we've, we've gone to and often gravitated to unintentionally and accidentally these small solutions that made the tension go away, but didn't really address the big challenge that we started with. Then we realize that. And then when we realize that, we say, oh, oh we've got a problem here. <laughs> Call in marketing. Marketing comes in. Marketing says, oh, yes, we can spin this up into purpose-driven marketing, right? We want to show our company is solving for these grand challenges. And the one recently I've, I've kind of have paid a lot of attention to is Chipotle. Um, has a campaign out, can a burrito save the world? And and I and I understand the impulse behind it. It's talking about regenerative agriculture and you know those types of things. And that makes sense to me. I understand why they're doing it. But if you're a kid who's working your way through college and you know you're putting beans in a tortilla every day, and you've got a manager who's being held accountable by the corporate office to reinforce the purpose-driven marketing and to carry that through in kind of, you know, their KPIs and, and their OKRs that they're responsible for. How much does that kid working his way through college or her way through college care about that when they're putting beans in a burrito every day? And what ends up happening then is we get this purpose fatigue happening. Mm. Because we're trying to instill all this purpose into this solution that maybe was created. I'm not saying Chipotle did this. I'm just I, I'm just talking about their marketing piece. But we're, we we start grand challenge. We have a pro. It's feel the tension. We don't sit in that creative tension long enough to get to the good stuff because we don't like that tension. We like frictionless organizations. We like people to play their strengths, and this doesn't feel like that. So we gravitate to this smaller solution. Then we call in the purpose-driven marketing, and it's this just this kind of vicious cycle that we get inside of. And so the idea around purpose, which is the third leg of that McKinsey's, and we don't have the analytics for that. Cycle, I just talk about that feedback loop. And then the third leg of the McKinsey stool on the growth triple play, this purpose, purpose idea. I can I kind of think about it in terms of not just purpose, but purpose-rich human experiences. And those purpose-rich human experiences could be a different way also of thinking about processing grief from unending cycles of innovation and failure because you got to fail to you got to fail to get to the good stuff right you got to if you're if you don't you're not you're not going to be kind of delivering on on the core kind of value proposition of, of innovation which is to find something new useful and valuable and bring it to market or bring it into creating social value uh, in a stakeholder economy but our purpose ideas have often set in marketing rather than coming down into kind of what is the experience of the people who are innovating in our innovation value change and can we re-engineer the innovation value chain experience 
so that the purpose of those innovation value change is not only to come up with something novel and useful, but also could it actually improve human flourishing in the process? I think it's possible. And the reason I think it's possible because we've seen it. We, we, have, we have seen a swamp in Florida built around uh, the experience and understanding how human imagination works and sparking wonder become one of the largest media conglomerates in the world in terms of Disney. So this idea around experience is not just something that should be about entertainment. We should be thinking about what can we learn from the confluence of different industries working together. So if you have the experience economy working together with the industrial manufacturing economy, working together with the, with the tech and the neuroscience space, and you put all of those kind of together, not to come up with a new product, but to come up with a new process, what's possible? on the other side of that. And I think we're there. Uh, I, there are people and companies that are beginning to do that. And it, it has me really, really excited about what might be possible on the other side of this. And I think generative AI has, has played a big role in, in, in that final push, pushing people into these spaces. In the introduction, I mentioned your work with the University of Colorado Denver in Imaginator Academy, and, and you alluded to it there as well. Could you maybe just share a few words about what that that work is and, and, and what the Academy does? So the Imaginator Academy, it's, it's fairly new. It's a little over a year old. And as organizations today are, are, are facing these kind of pivotal reframing moments, whether it's, you know, in business and society and the trajectory of our human agendas for companies, uh, for the, those companies to be able to thrive in an age of discontinuity, all of these radical shifts taking place, we either operate with them intentionally, or we operate inside of them and become subject to whatever they the, the wind blows around them. And so how do you find a play inside of that? for a university to not just do applied research, but to do applied research that also gets applied. We often think about research in, in universities in kind of a, in, in an interesting way. There's either, you know, bench research or found, uh, foundational research, or there's applied research. And so the applied research, while it sounds good, can often still be still about the research and not really about making change out in the world. And so the Imaginator Academy was designed to get into that space of being able to do something different that allows us to get out in the world, but using the research and translating that research. Now, the way we translate it is very interesting. We're focused specifically on something called on social brain capital, which is around wonder and things like that. But the way we kind of look at it is, is the, the data points, the dashboards that we're building involve kind of two big pieces. One is group creativity. And those are the cognitive abilities and skills of the group and the collaboration mindsets and tools that they use. And that group creativity determines the capacity of a group for novel ideation, novel production. Then whether or not that group is able to unlock that capacity gets into the second component of the metrics, which is around group social well-being. And these are our experiences in our process that have to do with the hope, trust, belonging, the compassion, the curiosity, all those things. That gives us a score that helps us to understand the potential 
or the likelihood that this group will be able to unlock their capacity based upon their social well-being. You put those both together, that gives us a construct then of social brain capital. And the multiplier effects on there is, of course, the ability of a group to use their cultural knowledge and their resources as a multiplier effect on that. And that's more than just understanding your market. That is about using kind of the, the cultural responsive approaches, not just to your marketing after the product has been developed, but to moving what does it mean to be culturally responsive up to the front of the innovation process? We're building the metrics that allow us to do that. So the metrics around social brain capital becomes really important. Then we're on top of that. The second phase of what we do at the Imaginator Academy is we're bringing together a global group of creativity scientists, artists, corporate leaders from both the, the, the large corp space, multinationals, as well as solopreneurs. And we're bringing those together to develop ways for artists. And I'm talking about really sophisticated artists here because artists have an incredible practice and we've, we've marginalized them for way too long in society, training them in just enough of the science. And so measuring the social brain capital of a company, training the artist in a little bit of the science, developing a artist residency on the innovation teams inside corporations that are strategic priorities of those corporations. The artists will go in, we integrate, not to make art, but we're integrating them into the teams inside of the companies to work on those innovation projects they're already working on. And then we measure the impact. We're going to do that over the course of the next two or three years, along with a national creativity census. So using the latest in the state of the science to do a national scientific measure of creativity in arts, business, and science. So looking at those three things as the American enterprise. And then after the three years of those national measurements, those pilot projects inside of companies, we'll pull all of that forward and getting into about four to five years from now, understanding how to systematize, create a new taxonomy of language. Our language around innovation these days is, is so, so small. And so this is also about creating a bigger language for innovation than we typically have had over the last 20 years. And we'll pull all of that forward and hopefully, you know, uh, what we what we find, we'll understand where the early wins are that will allow us to build the collective social capital between arts, science and business across the nation, um, grounded in uh, the cognitive neurosciences and social sciences in order to improve the innovation ROI of the U.S. And the innovation ROI, again, grounded in human flourishing. As a preceding, as a preceding antecedent condition for that innovation process, because we we've too long neglected the um, the human flourishing aspect as a part of our value chain, and then the kind of beyond that, we'll also you know really focused in on the storytelling. Going back to uh, Robert Schiller and narrative economics, what are the stories that are told around creativity that are holding us back uh, in, in, in our nation's uh, private sector. And the reason we're focusing on the private sector is, is practical in the U S 83.4% of U S workers get their paycheck from the private sector. And that can range from solopreneurs all the way up to multinationals. But if that is in the, the typical American spends more of their waking life at work than any other place. So if we're going to be thinking about the future of work, and we know that the World Economic Forum has told us that creativity, resilience, all these things that I've just mentioned are the things beyond the digital skills that companies will need to thrive. We've gone to where 
the research and the data and the global thought leaders have said, this is what is going to drive private sector outcomes. And the reason we're in the private sector is because that's where most workers are spending their waking life. And we all know that it's kind of out, out, out of out of sync right now with workers' lives. And so the storytelling around aligning that is not just a marketing thing, but how do you frame story how you frame stories determines what possible things you see and what of those possible possible things you see, what you consider to be valuable. And so the storytelling is a huge piece of this, but again, not just for marketing, like what is the, what are the stories we telling that are no longer serving? And then how can we use, you know, advanced uh, cultural analytics uh, around creativity and social well-being to form the social brain capital scores, put in the hands of very talented professional artists, integrate those artists into the innovation value chain of business in America. And then on the other side of that, hopefully in the same way that technology is now thought of not just as something that is a sector into itself, but technology is something that drives part of the infrastructure across all industry sectors, as well as participating in our daily lives and just how we get things done as individuals. I see the future of, of for artists who are interested, we're not saying this is a one-size-fits-all model either. For artists who are interested in this type of work and working with scientists and working inside a business to do this, I see the potential for, for art and artists to become the same kind of technological infrastructure, but in a different way, all built around creative thinking and social well-being that we now think about technology as part and parcel of our daily professional and personal lives. It sounds absolutely fascinating. If people wanted to find out more about your work, is there anywhere in particular you would suggest that they go, Theo? Yeah, they can uh, for sure hit me up on LinkedIn, Theo Edmonds, and then also at my website, theoedmonds.com. And through that site, you can access Imaginator Academy and all kinds of other stuff that I'm into uh, and working on, uh, like with the Brain Capital Alliance and coming up just next week in Silicon Valley, we have our uh, big Brain Capital Innovation Summit. And so we'll be rolling out some of these social brain capital ideas at that uh, meeting alongside of many of the things that often come up that people would normally associate with neuroscience in terms of dementia, uh, mental well-being and and population health and, and those kinds of things. That sounds fantastic. Theo Edmonds, thank you very much for your time. It's been brilliant speaking to you. Uh, thank you, Lawrence. I really enjoyed it. And I uh, hope I've uh, offered something valuable and useful for your audience. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.